0: Welcome to the Salt Company Cedar Falls Podcast. We're a ministry of Candeo Church, and we are glad you're listening. Salt Company, you can go ahead and find your seats. We're going to get started tonight. Uh, One quick thing. So same old, same old. Is actually there's a couple theories as uh, where, where that came from. The first one is that it came from pigeon English, post World War II, 1970s in Japan, and it's actually a uh, an abbreviation of same o same ol, which means uh, the same old thing. So that's where same old same old came from. So we call that we call that learning. We call that learning education. Okay. Um, Oh man, this is awesome. So if you don't, if I haven't met you, uh, it's very likely that I haven't met you. My name's Jake, I'm actually the teaching pastor at Candeo. And so Stephen asked me to come tonight and wrap up uh, the gospel series that y'all have been going through. And so I am super pumped to be with you tonight. Uh, So thanks Stephen for giving up a teaching rep here. Um, Kind of by way of introduction, it seems sort of obligatory to, to tell you a little bit about uh, myself, mainly my family. So um, my wife and I, this last August, celebrated our 13th wedding anniversary. Uh, that's us. Uh, at the top of, yeah. Yes, thank you. So we made it uh, so far. So we're at the top of Camelback Mountain there. Um, we, were, we were high school sweethearts. And I know, yeah. And so then when we graduated high school, I moved to Chicago to go to school. So we dated long distance for a couple years and got married going into my junior year of college. So she moved to Chicago. Uh, We lived there uh, for a little while and then moved back to Des Moines. So if you fast forward, uh, when we moved back to Des Moines, uh, five years into marriage, we had our first child and her name is Naomi. And she... Yeah, and she is now eight years old, and she started third grade a couple of weeks ago. So Naomi, uh, just a little bit about her, She's addicted to books. She, uh, So far, uh, really throughout the summer, she's read a book a week. And I'm not talking like, I'm not talking like graphic novels here, I'm talking like, like legit chapter books. And so for all of you teaching majors, you know that's a big deal for an eight-year-old. Um, she's incredibly smart and she's incredibly strong-willed, okay, because I, I have this philosophy of raising a girl where I'm like, I'm not gonna be the shotgun dad, yeah, right? Like, I don't, no. I'm just gonna raise a strong woman who scares guys away by herself. So I'm not going to be cleaning any shotguns. Like she's going to scare losers away all on her own and she will because she's super, she's super strong. And so at this point, either she's going to change the world or just burn it to the ground. And so time will tell. Okay. And, uh, (laughs) we'll see how that goes. Um, so then fast forward three years and, uh, our son Judah was born and this is Judah, at least the side of him. And, uh, we call him Joyful Judah, because his main purpose in life is to just make sure that everyone has fun. Like he's probably gonna grow up to design amusement parks or something. And uh, he loves cars, he loves animals, um, and so much so, yeah, that's his, so he just started kindergarten this year. He loves animals, he loves dinosaurs, so that explains the shirt. Um, but yeah, he is, he is awesome. Um, so yeah, this is just a little bit of our family, kind of the, the next one there. This is like, all right, so this is the Instagram version of our family, okay? You're going like, man, they look so happy, perfect family, right? That's the picture you'd see on Instagram, but there's also another picture that I want to show you of our family that's very different. Um, our our sister-in-law is big into embroidery. And so a couple years ago, what she did was she embroidered uh, this next picture for us. And that's that's the Herring family. And, uh, but this one is different than the other pictures because one thing that you'll notice in this picture that isn't in the other pictures uh, is that there are five hearts above our heads. And so if the Instagram version of the Herring family is a happy family of four with a little boy and a little girl, white picket fence, we don't have a white picket fence, but just imagine it with me. Uh, the, the actual version of our family is that we're, we're not a family of four, we're actually a family of nine. And over the past 10 years, we have had five miscarriages and we named every single one of those children. We believe they were made in the image of God. And uh, Justice would have been 10 years old. This year, uh, Hope would have been six. Piper would have been two. Mariah would have been 10 months old. And Elijah would have been, Mariah would have been a year old. Elijah would have been five months old. These are children that we never met. These are children that uh, we never held. Uh, These are children that we only ever saw in a post-operating room and a picture from a surgeon. And so just so you know, uh, Instagram lies, okay? The life that you're seeing from your friends on Instagram or Snapchat is not the perfect life that it seems to be. And so it doesn't matter how picture-perfect or how picture-perfect something is, there's uh, there's no person, there's no place, there's no situation that has not been touched by the brokenness of our world, like none. And so whether, whether it's a miscarriage or whether it's your parents' messy divorce that like ruined your middle school or high school years from the, the, the being molested by that family member or that close friend, to the discrimination that maybe you felt because of your ethnicity or because of your gender or the this, this, this sexual assault from the, from the guy that, that wanted more than you were willing to give, but he decided he wanted to take it anyway. Or the unexpected death of someone very close to you. These things and a thousand more are part of the great question of human history. And the great question of human history is this, it's what is wrong with the world and how do we fix it? That's been the question for thousands and thousands of years, what is wrong with the world And how do we fix it? Now, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you'll remember that we've been walking through uh, the Christian gospel through the lens of the book of Genesis, and that's the first book of the Bible, and because believe it or not, the answer to this fundamental question, what is wrong with the world, and how do we fix it, is actually answered within the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to go ahead and open to Genesis chapter three. We're going to jump to a few different places, but we're going to spend quite a bit of time here from Genesis one through three. I know you did that the first week, but I wanna show you something a bit different because what the Bible says is wrong with our world is sin. Now, maybe you might hear the word sin and go, wow, that, that's a really primitive, that, that's very primitive. How cute of you, how old school of you to think that sin exists, but the reality is, is that nobody, nobody not your parents, not your friends, not your professors. Nobody actually believes that there's no such thing as sin. And here's why. Because if there is no such thing as sin, if, if my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth, then, then all that we have is simply moral preferences. All that we have are moral preferences, but not moral obligations, okay? And here's what I mean. If there's no such thing as sin, then there is absolutely no basis for justice, none. Because everything is simply just a moral preference. Like if, if, if there is no such thing as sin, but morality is just a social construct, then, then you can't look at anyone or anything else in the world and say that what they are doing is wrong. All that you can do is say, I would prefer they not do that. Because that, that's, that's not my preference, but their truth is their truth. So I can't say that it's wrong. I can just say, I I just wish they wouldn't do that. If there is no sin, then you can prefer that racism not exist, but you cannot insist that it must not exist. All you can do is prefer that it doesn't exist. But if there is no such thing as sin, then you can't look at racism and say, regardless of how someone feels about that, regardless of whether they think it's right or not, you couldn't say that it's actually wrong. You couldn't look around the world at different cultures and say that the, um, that the, the mistreatment of women is wrong. You couldn't say that if there is no sin. You could simply say, well, my culture has determined that the way that, uh, that, the, the way that women are treated should be this way, but that culture has decided something different. And so that's fine. You have no basis to say that across cultures that something is wrong. And here's the thing, even those who would say that there are no moral absolutes, that in and of itself is an absolute statement. If there is no sin, you can only say that you wish things were a certain way, but you can never say that things should be a certain way. But what we, what we have in the Bible are unique resources for how to deal with the problem of our world and how to fix it. What we have in the Bible is that the Bible says that at the root of everything that is broken in this world, everything that has happened to you, everything that has happened by you, that shouldn't have happened at the root of that is what the Bible calls sin. And so in week one, what, what you saw was that God told Adam that he could eat from any tree in the garden except for one. And, and that's kind of an interesting thing to, for God to tell Adam because it's like, well, what was wrong, what was wrong with the tree? Why would God tell Adam not to eat from that tree? It's not because the fruit was poisonous. It wasn't poisonous fruit. There is no poisonous fruit at this point. It's not because the fruit was bad. We see that later on when Eve saw that the the tree was good, that the fruit was good. Like it was obvious that it was good. Why in the world would God tell Adam to not eat from a particular tree if there was nothing wrong with the tree? Couldn't it just be Because God wanted Adam to obey his command simply because God was God. Simply to acknowledge that God was God and Adam was not. Because the benefits of obeying God weren't obvious. But what God was saying to Adam is like, though the benefits of your obedience don't seem obvious, obey because I am God and you are not. But what we know from the Genesis account is he did eat from the tree, which reveals to us that the root of sin, the root of the brokenness in this world, ultimately is the rejection of God's good authority. Everything broken about your life, everything broken about this world is either a direct or indirect result of a a rejection of God's good authority. Because the reality is that you and I will often do the right things even for the wrong reasons. It's not because God is beautiful. It's not because God is worthy of our obedience. It's not because God is great. It's not because we we treasure God above all else that we just simply obey, even if we don't understand it. No, often you and I, if you're honest, we obey when the benefits are obvious, when it's obvious that, well, if I lie in this circumstance, then then this is gonna be a negative result. So I won't lie because I'll benefit from not doing that. But when the benefits of obeying God aren't obvious to us, How often do you and I do whatever the heck we want to do? (laughs) You see, righteousness, true righteousness, according to the Bible, is doing the right things simply because of the beauty of God. Simply because you want to honor God. Simply because you want to glorify God. Simply because you see God as greater than everything else. Not because the benefits are obvious. You see, any action or attitude any action or attitude without the glory of God as its motivation is also sin, which means that, you, that sin isn't just doing the bad things, it's also doing good things for bad reasons. When, uh, when I was growing up, we had a, this clock on our mantle right above our fireplace. Uh, this cl- it, was, it was almost like a miniature grandfather clock and it had a glass door on the front that exposed all of the gears. Like you could see how it's working, right? So imagine that you have a clock with all of its gears working together perfectly in sync, keeping time. Like it's ticking, things are moving. You look at it, you know it's accurate. Like imagine that clock and then imagine that one of those gears decides that it doesn't like where it's been placed. And it goes, why, why am I not up there instead of down here? What the heck? Like what, what was this clockmaker thinking? So then imagine that that gear jumps out of its place and as it tries to like, like go where it thinks it should be, it actually falls. And all of the gears are now grinding to a, it, it's there's screeching and there's gnashing and there, it's, there's a terrible sound and everything grinds to a halt because this gear has popped out of its place thinking that it should be somewhere else than where it was put. And now everything has come to come to a halt. You see what the Bible says is that we are that gear. We are the ones who've jumped out of place. We are the ones who looked at our design and our designer and said, thanks, but no thanks. I'd rather create myself. So Adam and Eve fall, you saw that in week one, you saw the root of sin, the rejection of God's good authority. And then last week, what you saw in the flood account are the results of sin. But before the flood ever happens, before we ever get out of Genesis chapter three is that God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden. And here's the thing, I thought for the longest time, maybe, maybe you still think this, if you do, that's fine. Cause it's been fairly recently that I realized this. I always thought that God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden because he was angry. You, you get that like, kind of like your landlord, right? Where it's like, I made this nice, maybe your landlord didn't do this, but at least for God, I made this nice place for you. I don't know how nice your place is. I made this nice place for you. And now you come in and you trash it. And now I'm going to evict you. And no, you don't get your deposit back. Cause I'm ticked. I'm ticked that you trashed the place. Like that's the way that I viewed God when he sends Adam and Eve out of the garden. But here's here's what we see. Look at Genesis chapter three, verse 22. Check this out. Check out why God sends them out of the garden. After after Adam and Eve have unleashed sin onto creation, Genesis chapter three says, the Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Do you see why God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden? It wasn't because he was ticked. It was because while at the same time there was this thing called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there was also another tree called the tree of life. And if you eat from the tree of life, you will live forever. And now Adam and Eve, our first parents, the first humans, are now in a fallen state of sin and brokenness, estranged from a holy God. And so God seeing the fallen state of his first creation says, lest they eat from the tree and live forever in that fallen state, I'm going to send them out of the garden because I have a rescue plan. I don't want them to live in sin forever, irreversibly. So in his grace, and his love and his mercy, he sends Adam and Eve out of the garden. He doesn't send them out because he was angry. He sends them out because God, from the very beginning of the scriptures, had a rescue plan that would not be thwarted. But just before he sends them out, he gives them a promise. Like a fireball in the night. In chapter three, verse 15. After Adam has plunged everything into darkness, God makes a promise. Look at this. Chapter 3, we'll start in verse 13. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock, more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. Check this out. Verse 15 this is it. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. What in the world is God talking about here in verse 15? What is he talking about? What does he mean when he says your offspring and her offspring? Like, Hostility between your offspring and her offspring. Is he just saying like all, all of humanity? Like all of humanity will now not like snakes. Is that what he's saying? No. Like he, because look, look down at verse 15 again. Your offspring, her offspring. He. Singular. Not plural. He. There's a very specific person that God has in mind who will be the great enemy of Satan. The one who hates humanity, who hates God's creation, who has unleashed sin and brokenness and darkness onto the world. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. I think, I think if, if you're in the Christian standard, I don't know what standard or what version your Bible is. I love the way that the, that the NIV states this. It says, he will crush your head and you will strike your head. The NIV gets this exactly right. This is what the Hebrew, what the original language of the Old Testament actually means. That the offspring that would come from Eve, the very specific singular one, would crush the head of Satan while Satan will just nip at his heel. That yeah, he will inflict a blow on this one, but this one will then come and crush his head. That these are not equal blows that are happening here. And who is God talking about? He's not talking about a people. He's talking about a person. And that person is none other than Jesus Christ who would one day come and crush the head of Satan himself. You see, Jesus is the one who would make sin not a permanent reality, but simply a temporary tragedy. Check out Romans 5. Fast forward to the New Testament. Romans chapter 5. It'll be up on the screen if you don't have it. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Check this out. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people, because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin like the, in the likeness of Adam's transgression but he is a type of the coming one. What is this saying? What is this saying? This is saying like, where did all of this brokenness come from? The great question of human history, where did all this brokenness come from? Where did it begin? It came through one man. Sorry, Adam. 7.6 billion fingers are pointing at you. All the brokenness came through you. Like you want to talk about a worldwide pandemic? How about sin? That's infected all of us. And Adam is patient zero. But unlike COVID, no social distancing, no masking, no, no, no quarantine will keep you safe because we've all been infected by the virus of sin. But look at verse 15 here in Romans chapter 5. But if you ever liked a conjunction, which by the way is what that is, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if by one man's trespass, the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. What does this mean? Don't miss this. This means that the gift of God's grace in Jesus Christ is not simply equal to the weight of of the curse in this world, but that God's grace in Jesus is infinitely greater than any sin done by you and any sin done to you, greater. And you go, how can that be? You don't know the brokenness that I felt. You don't know the abuse that I've endured. You don't know the things that have been done to me and you don't know the things that I've done by me. And I go, look at the word of God and see that the grace of God in Jesus Christ is greater than anything that's been done to you and anything that's been done by you. This means that no matter how deep your depression, the grace of Christ is greater. And no matter how horrific the abuse, the grace of Christ is greater. No no matter how painful the breakup, no matter how devastating the loss, no matter how piercing the criticism, the the criticism of other people toward you, or how about this, the criticism of you toward yourself. As you look in the mirror and you hate what you see, Whether it's because of how you look or because of what you've done. No matter how great those things are, the grace of Christ is greater. You see, Jesus doesn't just take our overdrawn account. Have you ever overdrawn your checking account? How many of you have done that? Wow, less than I thought. Okay, I had a really great relationship with Brandon at Community State Bank. I was, I was talking to my wife about this. She's like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, I don't know why it happened. I would, at least once a month, more than that, once every three weeks, I call up community state and beg them to, re- to reverse the overdraft charges. Like Brandon, it's me again. <laughs> I did it again. Like I forgot to transfer money. Like, can you take away the $36, you know, charge? And he did, he was awesome. We were great friends. Community State Bank in Ankeny. Yep, Brandon. <laughs> Anyways, Jesus doesn't just take your overdrawn account and bring it back to zero, okay? What he does is he takes our overdrawn account, he looks at that and he deposits an infinite amount of righteousness before a holy God. Like you might think that, that Jesus is like here to give you a fresh start. Like, well, you know, uh, I suppose like, yeah, maybe things in life aren't going that great or whatever, you know, like, like, like everyone wants a clean slate, you know, and so Jesus can kind of like give me a fresh start. Like Jesus doesn't give fresh starts. What Jesus does is he finishes your race. He doesn't give you a fresh start. It's not like, ah, I started the race, but now I've tripped a lot and I've kind of, you know, I'm bruised up and so, ah, Jesus, can you give me a fresh start? It's like, no, no, he has finished your race on your behalf. See, Jesus doesn't, like the grace of Jesus, you don't receive the grace of Jesus so that you can get a do-over. No, the grace of Jesus says that everything has been done. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He didn't come to make bad people better. He came to make dead people alive. Look at verse 20, Romans chapter five. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. There was this old Presbyterian minister in Philadelphia back in the 1920s who about halfway through his ministry, uh, his wife died unexpectedly and they had a young daughter at the time, and so uh, his name was Donald Barnhouse. And as after, after they bury his wife and her mother, uh, Donald's left fig- trying to figure out how do I grieve the loss of the love of my life and how do I walk with this little girl in processing like the death of her mom that she will never see mommy again. And so they're driving in their car in the streets of Philadelphia and they're, they're, they're stopped at a stoplight. And just as they stop at the stoplight, a moving truck makes a left turn and passes them as they're sitting in the car. In the way that the sun was hitting on this particular day, the shadow of the moving truck passed over the car to which Donald looks over at his daughter. And he asks her, would you rather be run over by a truck or by its shadow? To which his little girl said the shadow of course because the shadow can't hurt us. And he said, right, because if the truck doesn't hit you, but only a shadow, then you are fine. And here's what he said. The same is true of your mother. It was only the shadow of death that went over her. She's actually alive. More alive now than we are. You see, don't you see, Saul, company? That Jesus Christ was struck by the full weight of sin and death so that for those who trust, in his, who trust in his finished work, that even the worst things that happen to you will only be a shadow of death. Now, to be sure, shadows are dark. You say, that sounds great, but what I'm going through is dark. Shadows are dark. You can get cold in shadows, shadows are cold, shadows can be lonely, but shadows never have the weight of the substance that they represent. How can this be? How can this be? Look at verse 19, just one verse before. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You see, some of you are trying to fix yourself by your own effort. Some of you, are trying to fix the brokenness of your life, or maybe your life's going fine, but you look around you, you, you read the news or you just hear things and you're like, I wanna fix the brokenness in this world. And you go, I'm just gonna muster up the will. I'm gonna muster up the courage. I'm gonna try harder. I'm gonna do more things. I'm actually, that's even why I'm here, because I figure if God sees me come to self company, then maybe I'll get a few more points. Like that's kind of like extra credit, right? And maybe God will then like do a few things for me. Like maybe God will owe me if I do a few religious things. Some of you are trying to fix your life by your own effort, but trying to fix your life with your own effort is like trying to cure cancer with makeup and Band-Aids. Like you, like you could, you can, cover, you can cover it up. You could make it even look a little better. But, you're, but you would be doing nothing to actually address the sickness within but see, on the cross, Jesus Christ doesn't just address our symptoms. He bears our sickness. See, on the cross, Jesus doesn't, just cur- Jesus doesn't curse us for our sin, but he becomes our curse so that we could be healed. Where sin offers death, Jesus offers life. Where sin offers shame, Jesus offers joy. Where sin offers guilt... Jesus offers righteousness. Where sin is a tyrannical dictator who will not relent. Jesus is a merciful and good King. So my question tonight, as we wrap up this gospel series is have you received the forgiveness of your sins through faith in Jesus Christ? Or are you still trying to fix yourself by the works of your hands? by the good things that you can do. You see, here's what's interesting about that. If you think to yourself, I, I, I'm gonna clean myself up before I can you know, be good with God. I gotta figure a few things out. No, no, I actually don't need this whole like faith in Jesus thing. like I'm just gonna try really hard. You're doing the exact same thing that got us here in the first place. Here's why, because you still think you're in charge. You still think you make the rules. You still think you get to say how God will accept you. And is that kind of rejection of God's authority, not the very thing that messed everything up in the first place? You see, every other belief system, every other philosophy in this world looks at you and says, if you wanna fix yourself and if you wanna fix the world, then you gotta do this, you gotta do that, you gotta say this, you gotta be this. Do, 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 do. But when you look at the cross, the banner flying over the cross is not D-O, do more. The banner flying over the cross is D-O-N-E, done. Jesus himself said, it is finished. What is finished? Striving for acceptance before God. He paid the price for your sin. Will you receive his free gift of salvation? See what we see here in Genesis 3, what we see here in Romans 5, is that what Jesus has done is greater than what Adam has done. And for those who cease from their striving and trust in the grace of God for the forgiveness of their sins, death no longer has the final word. Suffering no longer has the final word. Sin no longer has the final word. But it's reduced to a fleeting shadow. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Stop trusting in the works of your own hands. Cease from your striving and trust in Christ tonight? What would keep you from trusting in Christ? Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for your finished work. Redemption for those who trust in you. Holy Spirit, I ask that if there is anyone in this room who has not received the free gift of grace through the finished work of Christ, Lord, that you would stir within their hearts an unsettledness, a discomfort. Would the taste of their sin and their striving be sour and bitter until they turn to you, Jesus. Oh, we thank you for the finished work that we can cease from our striving and look to you, the Savior of our souls. Pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salt Company Cedar Falls podcast. For more information about Salt Company, you can visit saltcedarfalls.com.